One of the areas where Python truly shines is on the web. Many well-known websites like YouTube, Pinterest, and Spotify are powered by Python. In the mid-2000s, a number of powerful and popular web frameworks were created such as Django, Flask, and Pyramid. It may feel like the choices of web frameworks and innovation in that space is basically baked and done. But we're actually seeing an explosion of new frameworks because of some new web paradigms. In this episode, you'll meet Martin Fassen, who created Morepath, a relatively new web framework built to be a first-class citizen of this JavaScript client-side heavy web paradigm that's popular in many apps today. This is Talk Python to Me, episode 99, recorded January 19th, 2017. I'm a developer in many senses of the word Cause I make these applications But I also use these verbs to make this music I construct it line by line Just like when I'm coding another software design In both cases, it's about design patterns Anyone can get the job done, it's the execution that matters I have many interests, sometimes conflict Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on... Python, the language, the libraries, the ecosystem, and the personalities. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Twitter where I'm at mkennedy. Keep up with the show and listen to past episodes at talkpython.fm and follow the show on Twitter via at talkpython. Martin, welcome to Talk Python. Hello. I'm excited to have you here. I really love web development and Python, and I think web development in Python is actually one of the really early places that Python became super relevant. And we've seen it spread to other places really well, like data science is the most recent of these. But, you know, at the heart, I think a lot of Python developers or web developers, when people ask me, hey, what do you do? And I don't want a long conversation. I just want a quick answer like, oh, I write web, I write web apps, I'm a developer, something like this. So I, I love web apps. And I think it's really cool, even though there are many Python web apps around, that you've created a new one relatively recently, within the last couple of years. So I'm excited to talk to everyone about Morepath. Before we do, though, let's hear your story. How did you get into Python and programming? Well, programming I've been uh, doing since I was a child, trying to uh, create games in BASIC on various uh, computers, first at my uh, father's office, uh, because we had no computer at home, and then later on uh, on home computers. What was that first computer? Uh, the very first computer that I remember using, I think that's actually the very first computer I used, was called a Triumph Adler, which is, I don't know what kind of brand that is, uh, was a CPM <laughs> machine. And then after that, moved to early PCs, Olivetti M24s are, are the ones I recall also being very early. And my home computer was an MSX2, so which was C80 based and more popular in Japan and Europe than uh, than the United States. Okay, and you so you started out originally just poking around at these things and trying did you try to write some games? Yes, yes, like I imagine many programmers tried to write some games, very simple things. I think it's interesting like People really want to get into it and write games, and games are some of the hardest types of software to write. Yeah, it used to be easier, I think, back then, because the, even mobile phone games are more complicated than the games that were commercial back then. But even there are a lot of sort of details like real-time requirements and things like that that you don't really have so much in uh, in other contexts. Yeah, absolutely. So where did you go from there? Playing around at home? Did you study computer science in university or where? Yeah, I did something more artificial intelligence oriented, but that's a very long time ago. But I had some courses, various languages, Lisp, Prolog, taught myself C. I had a Pascal course. I did some work with Delphi for a while back in the 90s. And then 
I was programming in C++, was writing this artificial life simulation, and then I heard about scripting languages, read an article in some magazine at some point that listed uh, Perl and Tickle and Python, maybe one or two others, and I basically just wanted to write some tools that could help me manage my C++ code base, and I looked at Perl, because that was sort of the obvious uh, candidate at the time, and it was on my computer, and messed around with it for a while, and I could see how that would be a useful language, like it had made things like data types really easy, but it never quite clicked in my brain. Then I remember printing out the Python tutorial from python.org, and I read it one evening before sleeping, and the next day I was a Python programmer. That's awesome. I'm sure it's one day, right? I've, <laughs> yeah. I've done this as well, but it's been very, very long that I printed, like I, I remember printing like a hundred pages of source code in C++ trying to understand some application, and printed it and took it with me because I was going away somewhere for the summer, and I didn't have a computer with me the whole summer. Like the world has changed so much, right? Yes, yes. This was just without a computer for during the evening, but I, I just had printed out the tutorial. And yeah, then a few weeks later, I actually managed to get a job writing Python code in 1998, which was kind That's of awesome. uh, kind of surprised myself. But I was at a, um, well, it was actually the veterinary department of uh, Dutch University in Utrecht, and they were looking for somebody who would clean up some script that had fallen apart that was uh, written in some... Um, combination of DOS batch files and DBase code and they uh, they wanted me to rewrite it and I said can I use Python and they said what's that and I said well that's a programming language uh, and is it is it readable I, uh, I said yeah yes it's uh, it's very readable and uh, uh, which is what really what they were looking for and then I found myself having a job writing Python code which then quickly sort of moved into the web as well I uh, started, uh, that was 98, as Zope was released as an open source uh, a product uh, back in 98 as well. So I started playing around with that and then uh, moved into web development from there. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> that first week or, or two of the job where you're just like, what am I doing here? I can't believe they just hired me. I just barely know this. Well, I mean, I guess I just been playing with Python for like a few weeks, I guess, but I, I it just clicked in my brain so much that I thought, okay, this is the right tool for the job. And it was sort of more or less a scripting job anyway, so so that that fit. And I remember I was reading like complex Python, the Python news group, and people were saying, oh, I wish I had a Python job and I'm stuck here programming in this other language that it looks really unrealistic to get a real Python job, you know, back then those were very rare. And then I was like, hey, I actually have a Python job and I, you know, I didn't even uh, particularly look for one. I just uh, just had one. So I was lucky. Yeah. Yeah, that's really lucky. I, I still hear that from people today that, you know, they're working in some other technology, but they, they play with Python at home and they, they're they're looking to, to get there. So that's really cool. Yeah, it's everywhere though now. I mean, Python, it's... Uh, it's really a different world. I remember Python. I had to explain to everybody what Python was. I mean, even other software developers. And these days, I don't have to do that anymore. Uh, it's really everywhere. Yeah. There's some stats. Somebody that did a study recently analyzing active, non-trivial GitHub repositories, which was something like they have 10K lines of code, no 10K's worth of file content, 
and they've been updated within the last year. And if you take that in there, Python is uh, the number two most popular language on GitHub behind JavaScript, which I think is overcounted. So it's definitely a different world. Uh-huh. Yes, yes. And there's just lots of commercial projects that use Python in one or another way that don't even show up on GitHub as well. Yeah, absolutely. So you talked about Zope and some of the thinking of the successors a little bit like uh, Pyramid and, and whatnot. It seems to me like those were kind of inspirations in your new web project because you referenced them somewhat positively in your documentation and things like that. Sure. Yeah. No, I started with Zoop in 98 and I was very involved with it until uh, I think even yeah about up to about 2010. I was even uh, a chairman of the Zoop Foundation for a few years. And Zoop was really, it was really a killer app for Python in a way because there are a lot of the, as you mentioned, web development was an early thing for Python, though I think data science was there very early as well. But the conferences, uh, like the early EuroPythons and the uh, International Python Conference that I went to uh, even before then, a lot of the people there were there because of Zope. Uh, that's how they were attracted to the conference and to, to Python. So it drew in a lot of people, similarly to, I imagine, Django does now. Zope was a web framework before we even had a word for that, because web framework <laughs> only uh, arose as a uh, concept. Later, so this, uh, it was called a web application server, I believe. And these frameworks were extracted out of like, let's build this web app. Oh, and actually, there's some kind of framework we could almost use here, right? In, in that sense. Soap was actually, yeah, it was a very strange beast. And in part, it's because there were no, there was no normal beast out there at the time because everybody was exploring. And in part, it's because it was enormously creative. What it had was a, a web-based user interface, which doesn't sound very amazing now because lots of things do. But back then, that, that's kind of, uh, unusual for web application development, uh, framework. And, through that, you would add templates, and later on, you could add little pieces of Python code. And then it sort of slowly morphed into doing more and more sort of larger scale Python projects using Zope's plugin architecture. And fairly quickly, we, we were dissatisfied with Zope's plugin architecture. And then this whole Zope 3 project emerged, which, um, was sort of intending to rewrite Zope and make it all better and create the uh, the future paradise. And while we created a lot of interesting technology and we learned a lot and actually built some real applications with Zope 3, it never uh, really uh, took off because we sort of overshot in the other direction, as you uh, tend to get. <laughs> yeah, you rarely make one rash decision. <laughs> it's usually swing back the other way, right? Like it's just, I see that all the time in technology that people have some kind of monolithic thing and they're like, oh, we're going to fix this we're going to make it extensible. You can enable, disable, et cetera. Just, yes. Then it just becomes like, well, wait, this is no longer easy to use. I liked it because it was easy. And now it's like there's 100 choices and it's hard to fix when it's broken and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, the early Zope was never really easy if you were going to build a larger Python-based project with it. But if you just wanted to write something quick sort of using the web user interface, then yeah, it was very easy. And... Yeah, I actually spent time in making the Zope 3 technology available in, in Zope 2. So I created this uh, little uh, glue framework that I called 5, which is what inspired 
the Python name for six. Uh, the name five was already taken, so they multiplied two and three. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. I didn't know you were behind that. Yeah. Uh, so I, I'm not behind six, but uh, two plus three was already taken, so they had to go to six instead of five. Nice. Yeah, you already had the package name, so that's yes, that debate. That technology is still in use inside of the blown CMS uh, to this very day. And then what I did in 2006 is actually started together with a bunch of other people, but sort of I kicked off that project. The Grok web framework, which was based on the SOAP3 technology, but tried to put a friendlier face on it, also inspired by sort of the new way for web frameworks that had been uh, coming uh, then. Uh, like, uh, right, that's like Flask and Django time. Uh, yeah, Ruby. Flask was not around yet, but but yeah, Ruby on Rails and Django had uh, were, were new at the time. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we tried to do something like that. So with Grok, we had some sort of moderate success uh, we, uh, because it sort of benefited also from the larger SOAP community. People uh, did start using it. It was a lot easier to start a new web framework project back in 2006 than it, than it is in 2013. Yeah, the expectations were way lower of what a web framework had to be, right? It didn't have to be as polished. And, and the web itself was simpler, right? I think the web itself was simpler, but... I think the the main thing that I think has changed a lot is documentation. Back then, you could start a new web framework and have, uh, you know, some documentation, but not really exhaustive doc documentation or, or very good documentation, and and still get some traction. And these days, that's a lot harder. I think the web was simpler, but the basics of AJAX, I remember, I implemented those early on in Grok as well, so that hasn't changed yeah, okay. all that much in some ways. But of course, client-side development was still uh, very different. Uh, there wasn't as much of it going around back then. Yeah, it was it was much, much smaller scale. I mean, maybe jQuery was around then. I don't even remember the time. Uh, maybe not. I think it yeah, was Yeah, I remember. I think I used Mochikit for a while, but yeah, I don't know whether jQuery yeah. was around yet. Yeah, but definitely yeah. not Angular, JS, and a lot of those types of things, right? No, I, I did a framework there as well. My, uh, <laughs> I just keep, keep creating stuff. <laughs> you, you do create I a can, lot of frameworks, I know. Yeah, because I can't I can help myself. So back in, I think, around 2010, it was just before all those client-side frameworks started emerging, I thought, oh, I have a great idea. I'll take my experience from server-side frameworks like templates and and uh, models and views and things like that, and I'll take some of those ideas and then see what happens when I use them in the, on the client. So I created this uh, JavaScript framework called Ovial, which uh, was based around jQuery but allowed you to uh, create views, few components for little bits of JSON that could identify themselves with a type and then it would look up the appropriate view for it and then you could just basically render a tree of um, client-side components driven by the server and just around that time Backbone emerged and uh, then Angular and then all the others and then I thought okay yeah it was a good idea but I just uh, <laughs> because other people are having the same idea and uh, yeah it was definitely an idea ripe for its time to take some of these server framework concepts and move them to the client uh, so OVL didn't get any traction but I did learn a lot from, from creating it uh, which helped me uh, oh, that's cool it was absolutely the time yeah it was definitely yeah. the time when there was many, a lot of evolution and creation around that that kind of stuff. There still is, but a lot of it was like every 
every month you'd hear about something that's going to change the world yes, as you know it, right? It's still changing quite rapidly. I myself, I mean, people complain about JavaScript fatigue, but I kind of like it because I like the creativity around it. Yeah, and I can say I'm a client-side web framework hipster because I was doing that before it was cool. <laughs> Definitely doing it before it was cool. <laughs> yes. Very, very interesting. So let's talk about your project, Morepath. Uh, one of the things, you know, I watched a nice talk from you at Pi. EuroPython in 2014. I'll be sure to link to the video. And one of the things you started out talking about was why would one go and create a new web framework when Flask, Django, Pyramid, and lots more exist already? Yes, and that's basically because I can't help myself. <laughs> there is, uh, it's just a creative urge. I mean, of course, there are reasons why I created one. I had a customer at the time who wanted something that could do REST APIs really well and was small enough to plug into a larger application. So I could have used an existing framework for it, but I said, you know, what if I just take some ideas I already have and I had some pieces of code lying about and I just put them together and I'll create a little framework. And that's where more path uh, came from. And it's still a relatively small framework. It hasn't grown that much. Uh, yeah, you describe it as a micro framework and it seems yes. certainly like it fits fits well in there. It seems like a somewhere between bottle and flask, maybe. I cheat a little bit because Morpath, the core itself is just a couple of thousand lines of code. Uh, it's built on top of this um, predicate dispatch library called Reg, Reg, which I also created, which is just 500 lines of code, I think. But then I spun off another library from Morpath uh, called Decktate, which is a configuration, a Python sort of decorator configuration library that Morpath then uses to implement its directives. And that's also some, I don't know, hundreds of lines of code as well. So, you know, you can still be micro if you depend on a few libraries that you're also maintaining. <laughs> uh, but nonetheless, it's still, uh, still pretty small. It, it's, uh, I think it's about the size of Flask or so. Depends a little bit on what you count. If you count the template language implementation or you count the, uh, the request response implementation, which is where Bob engages with more path, you know, that's, uh, how do you add up these things? How many lines of code is a micro framework? But yes, it's, it's small. Yes. Yeah. In my mind, micro framework is more about the exposed feature set and like how much I have to learn to work with it more than whether it's a thousand or two thousand lines or whatever. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. yeah and in that sense, I feel like your framework is something you can pick up pretty quickly and you can kind of understand a good portion of it. Yes. Yes. Pretty quickly. So let's talk about the goals first. Like, what were the goals when, of this project? So one of the things that I had been doing with Grok is I started using. So I have to go back to Zope again. Zope and also Grok uses use this database called the ZDB, uh, the Zope Object Database, which is a pretty nice object store for Python. You can just put in any almost arbitrary Python object, hook it up to another Python object just as an attribute. And as long as there's some path to a root object, then everything gets persisted automatically for you. That makes it really flexible because you can just basically store any kind of Python object to represent any model that you'd like. It sounds like a kind of early concept of what document databases became. Yeah, I mean, it's very tied to Python, which is both its strength and its weakness, because, you know, if you change your class, then suddenly the instances need to be updated. But it used to be very hard to explain, because when you said database in the late 90s, early 2000s, people just assumed you had a, you were talking about a relational database with SQL on it, and there was nothing really else that people uh, uh, were familiar with. 
and then NoSQL happened, and then it became a lot easier to explain. It's like a hipster no, NoSQL database, because it was NoSQL before there was NoSQL also. Yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, that makes some things very easy, but I needed to integrate a relational database with Grok. And one of the nice features about the Zoop object database is that you can you can vary um, well okay we have to go back to the zoop publisher zoop has this has this sort of publisher that's based on traversal so you just traverse a python object uh, so if you have a path a slash uh, b slash c to resolve that to an object and then call a method on that object to represent it as html or json or whatever it would basically just uh, do a lot of uh, get adder and get item into the object tree so you would just uh, get attribute uh, a from the root and then you you would get item B from the from from the from the item that you just got, and then you uh, ask for uh, get get or get item from that object, and then you get another object, and then you call it uh, represent me as HTML method on it. So that's how Zoop worked, and the nice feature of that is that it also allows you to construct URLs really well because you can tra- retrace the path that you took. So if you have an object like a document and you want its URL, you just can uh, you can construct it automatically. So I like that feature of object database and traversal. So then with Grok, I wanted to integrate a relational database, and I was using SQL Alchemy, but I wanted to retain that feature. And then first I sort of tried to coax SQL Alchemy to become a traversable tree. And while SQL Alchemy, it being very flexible, uh, made that possible, it was not really very, it didn't really fit the models very well. And to have to adjust the models just so you can actually traverse to it with URL paths it didn't really work very well. So then I had this idea, okay, I'll, I'll do it another way. I'll create a routing framework, but one with the property that you route not to a view, but to to the model, just like I was used to from the ZDB. And also I have the property that it uh, you can take instance of a class that is in the routing system. And ask for a link to it, and then it will just construct it automatically from the routing information that it has. Right, so you could do something like if you had, say, like a customer, let's say. Uh-huh. Your routing URL might look like something like slash customers slash seven. Sure. It might know that, okay, well, that seven actually corresponds to the customer ID, and then you have uh, attribute, uh, you have decorators that will indicate, like, well, here's the function that you call to actually do that query and, and represented however it's going to be represented yes right? yes that's how it works in mopath in crockett still had a slightly different sort of there were no decorators but otherwise yeah that's more or less the principle so to resolve something you first look up the model instance you first do your query or you construct uh, some kind of python instance you return this from a function that's connected to the route and then after that you look up a view function for it and it can do this based on the class of what you just found and information in the request and things like that. So you can find this view function and then the view function gets the request and also the, the, the instance that you just returned from the, from the path function. And then you do your rendering in there. And that has the nice property that you can link to any class that you expose to that routing system. Do you like register documents or, or type entities? You say these are the entities that you, you might be able to go to? I just, or whatever models my views need so in some cases those are backed by relational database like a customer and in some case i need to create a model that represents for instance a collection which is not really backed 
directly by a relational database, but you can you can implement it in terms of queries as well. And then you just attach views to that collection class. So yeah, with, with Grok, I figured this out. And then with Morpath, I sort of took that idea and cleaned it up and uh, uh, made that sort of the one of the central principles of the, the web framework. And I think sort of besides the easy linking, which was for sort of the primary motivation, I think it also really helps structuring code. With other web frameworks, you often you see some kind of um, get this object from the database, or if you can get it, do a 404 error kind of convenience uh, uh, function. And if you don't use that convenience function, you have to watch for you know a failure to uh, find the object. And if uh, you do so, you have to remember to raise a 404 error yourself. And with Morpop, because it has more knowledge about being able to find the model or not. It's not hidden inside of a view function like you would have in Flask or Django. Right. And if you screw that up in, let's say, Flask, you probably get like a, a none type does not have like whatever property you're looking for error, right? Yeah, you'll get a 500. Yeah, you're getting a 500 and, error. And that's, that surfaces as, you know, cannot process request 500, which always yes. gives people confidence in your application. Yes, yes. Yeah. It turns out that if you write, they have to write that boilerplate code anyway in your application. It almost doesn't cost anything anymore to just... Uh, write a separate function to separate it into two stages and you get other features from that as well you get you can do permission checks also because you have an idea of the instance that is being represented so you can say okay well customers are only accessible views for customers are only accessible if you have a certain permission and you can actually make sort of the concept of customer play a part in your authorization system as well that, that sort of all these because you constrain yourself to really route to a model instance first and then to a view you get from that constraint, the framework can benefit and build on top of it. Let me take just a moment and tell you about Metis, a sponsor of this episode. A data scientist's responsibilities can range far and wide. How can you be sure you have the necessary skills and training to enter the field or keep up with emerging technologies? Metis, a data science training company based in New York City, San Francisco, Chicago, and Seattle, provides full-time immersive boot camps, evening part-time professional development courses, online resources, and corporate programs, all with a goal of training you to become a data scientist and help you stay on top of new and necessary skills. Metis has a long list of professional development courses starting soon in any of these four cities taught by industry leaders. Interested in honing your skills? Then these courses are for you. How do they work? Courses on topics like data visualization, deep learning with TensorFlow, machine learning, and statistical foundations run two nights a week for six weeks during the evening hours that fit into your busy schedule. These courses are laser-focused on relevant topics and skills that are sure to enhance your career. They have a special offer for you at thisismetis.com slash talkpython. Be sure to check out what they're offering. It helps support the show. Sounds to me like you focused very heavily on RESTful type of ideas, right? Like the routing framework assumes that there's some kind of resource or model at the end and you can use like get to do default queries on it and, and things like that. Yeah. What, one of the sort of the basic ideas behind Morpath when I started developing it is to be good at doing REST. It turned out that actually, you know, a framework that's good at doing REST actually is also pretty good at doing traditional server-side web applications as well that do generate HTML. Those things are not um, in conflict with each other at all. 
But yeah, the initial goal was to do REST well and actually template language implementation took, I think, a year and a half or so until uh, I finally got around to doing that. Okay, so some of the origins was almost to make this a something that you can serve up almost static HTML with rich JavaScript that reaches back to the server for all sorts yes. of data and, and yes. whatnot. Yeah, because I had been developing, you know, even with OVL, I had been developing that way. So I, I had some ideas of what, what I wanted my framework to be able to do also from the client side perspective. And one of the things that I sort of always have been is I try to actually do real REST. <laughs> These days, REST, the term has become so eroded that it basically just means, yeah, it means endpoints that the client just needs to know about and it returns some kind of data format, but it doesn't yeah. involve linking or anything like that. So I always actually try to do and work with, with real REST where your JSON data structures also include links to other structures, to sort of the other endpoints and that you can sort of enter your application with one root endpoint and then find sort of all the links and follow them and perhaps also embed objects if you want to, if you want to get to. To me, REST has become a synonym for HTTP-based services. Yes. Usually that return JSON. But I think the two things that are often neglected that you are hinting at is one is content type negotiation. Uh-huh. And the other is the dynamic linking and discovery, right? You request an original resource and it tells you like how you can continue yes. to explore the service. Morepath has good support for content type negotiation, right? Well, actually, that's a thing I haven't, I have cared less about. So it's actually, we do have a really powerful system which allows you to build that should you want to, but I haven't seen a lot of people actually try. Yeah. So the idea that if you request HTML, you'll get HTML from the same URL as where you, if you request uh, uh, JSON, then you'll get JSON, or perhaps you have multiple, even multiple versions of your API that are sort of negotiated that way. In practice, I haven't seen a lot myself yet. That doesn't mean very much. Sure, but you can go to like a view and say at you know at app.json, at app.html and, and things like that, right? Like theoretically. Yes. What you can do is you can name multiple views and then you can do well it's not negotiation, but you can just say, okay, I want my a different version of this or a different view entirely actually, because you uh, views are looked up by the class of the model, but also by the request method and also by the the name of the view, which is the last part of the path. If, it, if it's there, you can use an add sign. And uh, you can also look up views if they have a body. You can actually look, interpret somehow the post body if it's JSON and then switch to a different view if you uh, post something else. Just have it dispatched to a different function. And that whole system is extensible. So you could just write a new directive and add more criteria for your views in your own application. And it's actually possible to have, in the same runtime, to have one application that uses more criteria than another one. And, and they will just live next to each other because of more path configuration system. So you can add stuff that looks at the accept header. That's pretty easy to implement sort of in a basic case. But if you want to do full accept header support, it gets uh, tends to get a little bit hairy because there's a lot of different possibilities there. I find, yeah, right, that that's a very rarely used feature of services. Usually people say, go to this URL, do a get, and you're going to get JSON or something like that, you know? Yeah, yeah, because the information is encoded in URL, right? You can just see it. And if you suddenly have to worry about content, uh, I mean, yeah, uh, content types that you do the request with, it becomes a lot harder to sort of uh, 
get an idea in your head of what's going on. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So one of the things that you talk about that I thought was cool, and you you even had some nice hand-drawn pictures <laughs> nice, <laughs> in, yes. in your presentation, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And one was like a, a web framework and embodied as a person pulling their, their like dress shirt open and there's like a, a more path super superman type of uh-huh. suit underneath and you talk about the superpowers of more path do you want to touch on those a little right so some of them i've touched on already but one of the superpowers i would say is the uh, dispatch system so uh, the view dispatch system but it's also used used in other areas like this authorization system uses it for instance allows you to write Python functions that dispatch on not just one argument like you have normally in Python with a method that dispatches on self, at least you can look at it that way. So the class of the self argument of a method with the same name determines which actual method gets called. You can also dispatch on other arguments as well, and not just its class, but also other attributes of those arguments. And that allows the view system to dispatch on the class of the model. The request methods get put post of the request, the view name, which is also stored on the request, um, the last part of the path. But also if the accept header or, you know, the type of the JSON body that you cement or whatever else you come up with. Yeah, I can tell linking is super important in, in this whole routing and linking is really a key part of what you're trying to focus on. Right. But yeah, th- this is the dispatch system. Okay. That's not the linking or the routing system. It allows you to write views that are that can be really general, mm. work for you know any subclass of a particular base class, or be really specific for a specific class as well. And you can dispatch a lot of different factors. So that's the reg bit. Yeah, there's almost like an inheritance thing that you can do with that stuff, right? Yes, you can kind yes. of override a view in a specialized yes. class. Okay, gotcha. Yes, yes. So it's, it's like basically, if you just look at the model bit of how you register views, it's it's very much like you define methods, but you don't define them inside of the class. You define them just as functions outside of the class, and your decorator says where where they belong. But basically. That's just one factor of what it does to look up with. And authorization also works that way. It's like, do I have this particular permission for this particular uh, uh, model instance? And then it also knows about inheritance. So you can be very specific about, the, well, this subclass needs to have a different permission rule than everything else. And that's Reg. Then there is the, uh, uh, well, the automatic link generation I already talked about, which I think is really neat. And most frameworks don't really do it. Uh, I mean, they do it sort of halfway where you say, okay, well, you need to give all your routes um, a name. Uh, you need to come up with a name and remember that and maintain that. And then when you want to generate a link from your Python code or your template or whatever, you need to use the special API or do the special thing. And then you need to give it all the variables that are needed to construct the link again. So you need to know still what those things are, whether that's the ID or whatever the, the, the link construction is based on. Yeah, and it usually appears in multiple places. There's usually like yes. some configuration thing where you define the route for the URL dispatch, and then there's there's the actual template where you put the thing, and you have to know, okay, I have to replace you know these these two parts of the URL with this part of data, and then you, in your actual view, you've got to pull that data out of the route data that was passed, and it's at least in three places. Yeah, yeah. So you, so you have to do that, and if you have multiple places where you link to the same thing, you have to do it sort of in multiple places. 
And that also makes the code less generic because suddenly it's dependent on sort of the particular structure of what you're linking to. And if you were to change that, then you would have to change all the templates to link yeah. to it. Yeah, yeah uh, everything breaks. You know, and so what I do on my web apps is on my model, I, I will use uh, like some kind of rich class and then convert it to a dictionary at, at sort of render time. But I'll put like a method like here's the function or the property that gets me the URL with all the pieces yes. filled in. And so yes. I'll go in, in like template and say, you know, dot like purchase URL or, or whatever. But yeah, exactly. You kind yeah. of bake yeah. this concept directly into more path in a sense, yes. right? Yes. Yes. So that, that it's that concept, but then you don't have to burden your classes, your model classes with information about the web, which is basically, I mean, it's a reasonable compromise. I see Django. You can also do it with Django. There's a convention there as well. It's still, uh, Lee, why would my model class know about URLs? That's the, the whole point mm-hmm. about routing framework is to, uh, to not have to worry about that kind of stuff in the, in the model classes. Exactly. You look at the, the standard MVC design pattern. There's, you know, an arrow from down to the model, but there's no arrows back from the model, right? Which, which is like these, basically what I'm proposing, right? That it knows how to get back to these things. Yeah. And, and more path knows how to do that, but it, the information is, may, is, is, is stored outside of the model classes themselves. Nice. In the uh, configuration system. But that allows generic code as well. If you, you know, make, have a list of objects and you just want to create a list of links to it. And those objects might be in completely different places in your website. I mean, if you were to solve that with, well, you could solve it if you, Again, burden your model with this get URL method, then you can do it. But without that, you would have to use a lot of special cases in your template or whatever to yeah. create the right link. So Mopad does that for you. It gets the information that it needs from the models by default. Just uh, uh, there, there's a convention that the name that you use in the route is the name of the attribute, but you can override that to reconstruct it. So that that's really powerful. And then there's the configuration system. So Mopad has an actual sort of thought through configuration system as an entity by itself, which should not be that unusual for web frameworks, but it actually is. And what I mean with the configuration system is the system that lets you express things like, okay, well, this route exists and this view exists and, uh, and I have this permission to access that view or I want to install a middleware that uh, sits between the request and the, and the handler and the response and sort of can interfere in there. Or I have a template rendering engine uh, that I want to plug in. All those things uh, I consider to be configuration and that's really my ZOAP history speaking because in ZOAP 3, that was one of the big innovations. We created this uh, XML-based configuration language called ZCML where you would express all of this in XML files, which was sounded really cool at the time. <laughs> but one of the things that I did... You just put this namespace here on this XML element that it'll... Switch, like, oh, yeah. <laughs> just kidding. Oh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, that, you know, you would just have an XML, a uh, little XML language that was namespaced, of course, where you would say, okay, well, this, well, you did have routes, but you would say this view has this permission. And uh, if you, uh, there were all kinds of things that could be con- uh, configured, you would have adapters and things like that. But that's all uh, pretty low level stuff. But also services like, you know, the, the, the service that can send email is, is here. So if the application asks for it, just look at the configuration basically for the service that can send email. That kind of uh, pattern you tend to see a lot in larger applications that need to be customized in different uh, uh, contexts, uh, like a CMS, for instance.
This portion of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by Hired. Hired is the platform for top Python developer jobs. Create your profile and instantly get access to 3,500 companies who will work to compete with you. Take it from one of Hired's users who recently got a job and said, I had my first offer on Thursday after going live on Monday, and I ended up getting eight offers in total. I've worked with recruiters in the past, but they've always been pretty hit and miss. I tried LinkedIn, but I found Hired to be the best. I really like knowing the salary up front. Privacy was also a huge seller for me. Sounds awesome, doesn't it? Well, wait until you hear about the signing bonus. Everyone who accepts a job from Hired gets a $1,000 signing bonus. And as TalkPython listeners, it gets way sweeter. Use the link Hired.com slash TalkPython to me and Hired will double the signing bonus to $2,000. Opportunities knocking. Visit Hired.com slash TalkPython to me and answer the door. What I did with Grok is, uh, is already try to merge that back into Python so you could express it. Uh, well, we didn't really have class decorators at the time and function decorators were very new, so we, we did it in another way. But you can express it inside of Python code. And then with more path, I express it with decorators. And all those decorators are attached to classes, application classes, subclasses of the more path application that allows you to the B classes you could inherit. So you can say if you want to inherit all the configuration of a particular base class and then override specific bits of configuration like one view or added piece of middleware or whatever, you could just do that with subclassing and then you add your configuration to the subclass and then your base class still has the original configuration. So if you were to run that behind a whiskey server, it would still behave as it did originally. But your subclass uh, has a new, uh, if you instantiate that, you get a whiskey app and that will have the new behavior. And that's really powerful. And then what's also powerful is that you can actually compose those little applications together into a larger one. So MorePath allows you to mount applications onto other applications, which all could have their complete different configuration. They could even override some very basic behavior of MorePath and run in the same runtime. Sure. So give me some examples of like, what two or more applications might look like, how do they work together, what's a practical story there? Well, so for instance, if you wanted to develop something like a GitHub where you have projects, projects could have issue trackers, and you also have a wiki, perhaps, in a project. Now, those issue trackers and wikis could be implemented as separate applications that don't know anything about projects or each other. So you could configure them with their own routes and views and things like that. And then you can mount them together into onto the project application should you want to use the wiki and the issue tracker there. But if you wanted to mount them somewhere else in a completely different project, you wanted to use the uh, the wiki, you could mount it there. And in the mounting, the act of mounting, you define sort of how to translate from the uh, sort of the outer applications uh, set of concepts to the, for instance, find the ID of the wiki app or whatever uh, to find the wiki in the database. So they're, they're really isolated from each other but you can combine them with composition. And then, you know, if you have a customer that likes the wiki and it's all perfect, but just wants to tweak this one little thing, you know, in their deployment, then you could subclass the wiki and change it in that one little uh, way. Hopefully your wiki will let you do that. That's uh, uh, still up to the design of the application. But yeah, that kind of sort of feature is something that I was used to from Zope 3. And Pyramid is the other Python web framework that has this kind of, 
capability, though it does not have the mounting system. I don't believe Pyramid allows you to run multiple configurations in the same application. But I might be wrong. Sure, you might have to just merge it. But at least it has this notion of configuration, override, extension, that kind of thing. And Morpath tries to let you do that while also being really simple to use. So you just... You know, you have application classes and you can subclass them. Sure, that's that's really cool. So instead of having one big monolithic app, you could write a bunch of small apps and then sort of glue them together. Yes, yes. Okay, that's really, yeah, that's really cool. You have a couple of ways to get started. Like if I want to get started with more path, like what are the few steps? You know, obviously pip install more path, then, then what? Well, there is a... Do we have scaffolding? Yeah, we have a cookie cutter template out there now. It's in the documentation. Uh, so you could use that. And uh, then you get set up with a sort of slightly bigger Morpop application. I've been resistant sort of to doing something like this for quite a while because I find that if you do a lot of scaffolding, it sort of becomes tempting to put a lot of, sort of generate a lot of code basically when your project starts. And then I always think, okay, why is that not a library? Why cannot, is that not? configuration-wise, there's so much sort of stuff that gets generated just to get an application going. Yeah, I think that, you know, yeah. Django sort of has that, right? In yes. the sense that people think Django is, is huge, but you can actually create like a one-file simple Django app. It's just nobody does it, so it feels larger, I think, in some yeah. sense. I, I think also Django is larger in other senses, but I, I believe... No, yeah, it is larger, but it has its ORM and, and a template language and a lot of other things. But... You know, and I think Pyramid suffers from this as well in that it, it feels really big because when you create it, there's so many pieces. I, I don't necessarily mind that, but I think that's yeah. a message that it does send, right? It's a different philosophy, I think, and both of them have their benefits. So, so Pyramid, I think, really tries to keep a lot of options open and to be sort of a little toolkit that you can use in very different ways with a Z2B, with a relational database, with routing, with traversal. Sort of it has all those different options and it tries to be pretty neutral about sort of what the way that you pick is. And uh, that's, I mean, that's useful, but with Morpath, I try to be a little bit more opinionated. I mean, it's still a micro framework. You can still do a lot of different things, but I do say, okay, there's routing and you route the models. And there's no traversal. There's no routing to views. You could plug it the object database. It's completely database agnostic, but it, it tries to be a bit more opinionated about some bits right. in the hopes that that also makes it more approachable so that, you know, basic application is not so much... Uh, Heavy lifting. Sure. I, well, I think opinionated is has been the success of Ruby on Rails. It's been the success of Django to some degree. So it's not necessarily bad. No, no. An opinionated is not bad, but it's sort of a tricky balance between being a micro framework and being flexible, but still being opinionated. But, you know, if you're going to be a framework, you have to have some opinions because otherwise there's no... Uh, pointed at all, right? There's, there's, you're a framework. You're supposed to guide people in one direction or another. And Pyramid does have opinions. It has opinions about the uh, configuration system, about these uh, uses the ZOP component architecture uh, to uh, put things together. And those things are, are pretty fundamental to its use. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a place in Morpath where I can plug in some kind of middleware. Like, what are the, the options for that? There are, there are many things I can choose from and, and wire together. There's a tween system, and I just took that term and the concept from Pyramid. I stole a lot of ideas from Pyramid and Chris McDonough because he did. He went there first, right? He he was coming from Zoop, and then he thought, okay, I'm going to do it better, and then uh, uh, he was very successful doing that. And then I thought, okay, well, 
Let's try as well. See where <laughs> I end up. <laughs> sure. So tell people about what tweens are in case they don't know. It's a slightly higher level abstraction of, of what a whiskey middleware is. A whiskey middleware is a little bit too low level because whiskey is very low level, but a tween is some, is a function that takes a request object and calls some kind of handler, which is your application or another tween that's sitting below that returns a response object. And because you have this function that you plug in, you can do stuff to the request just before it goes into the handler, or you can do stuff to the response just before it comes out of the handler. And that allows you to do all kinds of neat stuff like I uh, see. commit transactions or uh, to do stuff to the HTML that comes out of the system or whatever. Right. Like uh, I think Rollbar is a tween in pyramid and you can install it and anytime there's a 500 error it'll capture all these details and right, send right. that off and all you got to do is like pyramid.include rollbar middleware name it's like pyramid right. rollbar right. or some variation of that name yeah a, a django also has its own middleware system which is very similar with more path it plays sort of into the configuration system though of course only the outer application mounted applications they all share the same middleware of the outer application but with inheritance yeah it allows you to uh, basically make available a more path application that has some middleware installed and then if you subclass that then that middleware is there as well for you so you don't have to uh, know very much to uh, to use middleware and you can also uh, configure a middleware uh, to go on top of that or just under it. And then Warpod takes care of doing the uh, the sorting so that everything happens in the way you specified, if it's possible at all, of course. Sure, of course. Okay, yeah, yeah, very nice. What kind of templates are supported? Like, do you have Chameleon? Do you have Jinja 2? Yes, a Chameleon, Jinja 2, and Mako, I believe. Okay, yeah, those those seem to Bunch be... A bunch of plugins. They're not out of the box. You just need to install the template, dependency, uh, more.chameleon or more.jinja2, etc. And then you just subclass from a base class that those packages expose, and then you have that template language available. So then when you use that extension, uh, those particular extensions, um, for like .pt for Chameleon and .jinja2, I believe, for Jinja2, then it will just uh, render using that template language. You could even use both in the same app if you wanted to. Yeah, and one of the other types that you have is just straight up JSON, right? You can just put uh, a yes. Decker, Decker yes. say, this thing renders as JSON, it just yes. converts directly. And- yeah, then you just return a Python structure that can be uh, serialized to JSON. Okay, excellent. What's the um, the deployment story? Like, this is just a straight-up WSGI application, so I can put it on micro-WSGI backed by Nginx or G-Unicorn or whatever I want, right? Yes, yes. You, if you take the application class and you instantiate it, then you get a WSGI application and you could just hook it into whatever you like. Okay, excellent, excellent. Uh, how about Python 3? versus Python 2, what's the the status of the various versions? Uh, well, we support both. Uh, we have for some years now. For Morpath, that's fairly simple. For Reg, there's a few very dark corners of Python that we have to be uh, aware <laughs> of. But yeah, both are supported. Okay, yeah, excellent. It's good to see lots of projects supporting Python 3 these days. Nice to hear that one does. Yeah, if it's, it's easier for, for libraries than for applications. So uh, if you have a test suite, that's pretty comprehensive. It's uh, it's pretty doable. Okay. Excellent. So you're also involved in some other projects, and we're getting kind of the end of the show. So maybe um, maybe we just really quickly say what they are, and then one one or two sentences about them. Don't want to go deep on it, but just to let people know the other projects that you, you've worked on. So we talked about Zope and Grok already, and Oveal. 
uh-huh. more path. But, but you've also done some stuff with LXML, right? Yeah, I created the LXML years ago. I've been messing around with XML and Python. XML was way cool back in 2000. Oh, I remember. So I messed around with Python and XML, and I tried to write my own DOM implementation a few times and created a, sort of a start of an XPath implementation uh, at one point. And it was all very interesting, and I learned a lot, but none of them sort of became anything very useful. And then... At one point, I had already worked with the libxml2 library, which is this uh, really fast, very featureful XML library, and libxlt on top of that, uh, written in C. And they had Python bindings, but they really sucked because it was like programming C in Python. Uh, <laughs> so if you if if you were initialize something wrong, then you get a sec fault in Python. And oh, if you no. <laughs> forget to free something, you would just get a memory leak in Python. And those things are not something you want from a Python library. So I decided, okay, let's be minimally ambitious and uh, build on top of this libxml2 library because it's really fast and try to create a Pythonic API and also not invent the Pythonic API for XML because Frederick Lant already had done that. He created Element Tree and, and there wasn't any C Element Tree at the time, just Element Tree. So what I did is, okay, well, let's create an Element Tree API with extensions for XLT and XPath and all those things on top of uh, libxml2. So that's what I did. That actually is quite tricky because of trying to do garbage collect C objects that can be in tree <laughs> in tree shape to each other and things that I mean can be separate from each other but maybe you know there, there's all kinds of sort of in, interesting details there and I used a technology called Pyrex at the time but it's now been renamed to Cython so I was a very early adopter of Pyrex uh, because I didn't want oh, to write that's all cool. that C code myself yeah. and then uh, one of the best things in my open source career sort of happened uh, so I worked on LXML for maybe a year or so and I got sort of it working and it was doing garbage collection and there was an elementary API and it was all uh, working uh, uh, pretty nicely. And then this uh, this German guy, Stefan Benel, he uh, started uh, sending me lots and lots of patches and all kinds of enhancements and features and things like that. And I basically, I was busy. I couldn't really uh, keep track of all the patches. And then I made the conscious decision at one point. I remember it being the end of the year at one point. And I, just, I mailed him and I said, you know, now you're co-maintainer of the project you can do whatever you like um <laughs> so i gave him that power and responsibility and that was a very good move uh because he's been maintaining lxml since then which is like i don't know more than 10 years now uh, <laughs> and added lots of features and improvements and things to it and he also descended down the stack because he he ran into pyrex because i was using that and he wanted to improve that as well. And in the end, he and some uh, sort of people from the data sciences angle, they forked Pyrex uh, and they basically created Cython because, you know, he was descending through to that as well. And I sort of always uh, wondered, like, if he keeps descending, you know, eventually he'll be doing microcode architecture for CPUs or whatever. <laughs> but he stopped there. As far as I know, he's, he's only doing a site. But he's been a very capable maintainer. So I always say that I put LXML in the open source bank and I'm getting interest on it because people are uh, added, have added features to it since then. And I still use, I was using LXML just this week 
in a project it's still uh, I still run into it and I just use it as a library now but I did create it originally it's probably a good feeling though to run across yeah. other people's projects and go oh there it is yeah it's a very good feeling it's also very useful to say to potential because I'm a, I'm a freelancer so it's very useful to uh, tell Python people that you created LXML because then <laughs> yeah. oh yeah we use that most people <laughs> know yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh prove to me that you actually know what you're doing yeah that library you're using yeah, yeah I wrote that already so yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh alright then no it's uh <laughs> That's pretty neat. Plus, yeah, I've been drawing interest on the. I mean, usually when you have an open source project, you don't really draw interest on it. This is an exception. But yeah, yeah there has been features added to LXML, like HTML parsing and all that stuff that, that I've used in the past that there were just pure interest payments on my initial investment. Oh, absolutely. Cool. You also uh, did something called Fantastic and Bauer Static. What are those two? Yeah, fan static actually. Yeah, it's oh, very hard static. to pronounce. Yeah, yeah, I gotta read more carefully. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a joke on. I mean, it's the playing of words, course. but uh, it's it's about those projects came out of something I actually started with hurry dot resource, which was a soap project. Um, so what I needed was serve JavaScript files in my application, and those JavaScript files had dependencies, and there was no dependency system for JavaScript. So I created one in Python, and a resource eventually got sort of renamed Fanstatic and, and refactored into it. And the idea was to piggyback on Python's packaging infrastructure and Python's dependency infrastructure by just having modules where you declare that you have a JavaScript file or maybe a CSS file, other statics resources, and how they depend on other ones, and then it can automatically generate include statements uh, um, or generate uh, rollups for you in a web page. Okay. Oh, very nice. And that's fan static, and it was sort of piggybacking, so you could release like jQuery as a Python package, and then you mm-hmm. just uh, install it like that and start using it, and it it would be a, you could you use it as a whiskey middleware, so it would just uh, you would just insert fan static on top of your web framework and then inside of your view code you would say okay well, I need this jQuery or whatever or jQuery UI and then it would figure out it would need jQuery as well and then it would just uh, include the right script text for you automatically by the, the middleware would just magically do that so that became an open source project a bunch of us worked on but of course JavaScript now does have a dependency system took a long time but uh, and a packaging system so that became, yes. And Bauer is one of those, right? Yeah, yeah, Bauer is one of those. And, you know, when I started Bauer Static, it was basically, okay, I'll just whip up something that's based around Bauer because there's a packaging system already there. In some ways, Bauer Static is less powerful than Fast Static, but it, at least you can install a Bauer package. You don't have to wrap all your JavaScript code inside of a Python package and then upload it to PyPy anymore. You can just use the Bauer package database. These days... You know, I, I use Bower less and less as well. I would, I, I tend to just go for common JS packages on npm and then mm-hmm. use the tools that exist for that to package up my JavaScript code. But there are still use cases like Bower Static can solve. They're a little bit harder to solve with those tooling because you have a. If you have the use case that you have, that's typical for enterprise software, where you have one core application that needs to be deployed in multiple places with particular extensions and if those extensions are also javascript code bundling everything up for one one deployment is not good enough you would need to do something to bundle up things in pieces and then if you want to ship them separately it all becomes pretty hairy because you, the bundling tool needs to be run sort of at the very end so for use cases like that something like fast static or or power static is still work better if at least your 
you know, your native enterprise installation system is something like Python packages. Uh, so that's a very specific use case. Those are both really nice touches. All right, so I think I'll have to leave it there for more path. We've we've definitely got into a lot of detail, but I know there's there's a lot more we could touch on. All right, Martin, before I let you out of here, how about your favorite editor? When you write some Python code, what do you open up? I use Emacs. I sometimes try out other editors, and then I go back to Emacs. I, I realize now what it is, because I'm not really an Emacs power user. At least that's what I say, but I've been using Emacs so long that I... You probably are. <laughs> I, you know, learn, learn more and more features over the years. But nonetheless, I wouldn't call myself an Emacs power user. But, you know, if you use it for 10 years and you learn a few features every year, you do know a bunch of features at the end. But the thing I really like about Emacs is that it just knows how my Python code is supposed to be indented. And uh, if I press tab, it tends to do the right thing. Also, in other languages, it indents mm-hmm. stuff. And I'm so used to that that I tried Atom a while ago, and it just didn't do indentation right for my tastes. I could press tab. I could install an extension, and then it, it would let me press tab, but then it would just indent stuff wrong. <laughs> and then uh, I went back to Emacs again. So, yeah, we'll see. Yeah. All right, cool. Yeah, there's a lot of, there's increasingly more options around the editors that are that are good, I think. But yes. That, that's cool. Yes. yes. And favorite PyPI package? We've got 96,000, almost 97,000. I have trouble deciding. I mean, I like LXML, of course, because I, uh, I mentioned already I'm drawing interest on that one. So maybe I'll just stick to that. All right. I use so many, and there are so many very nice ones, but I just can't really think of any anyone in particular that stands out. Sure. Um, it's like, which which one of your child, children do you love the most, huh? Well, yeah, it's not even my <laughs> own children. It's other people's children do I love the most. That's true. That's true. No, there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of nice packages there. Let's see whatever. I mean, I used Click recently. I like that. Yeah, that is nice. That's a nice little library. What else have I uh, used recently? Uh, well, I like, I've been messed around with Numeric and Pandas uh, recently, mm-hmm. uh, but I was playing around with developing a data-driven game engine, uh, because, you know, why use Numeric and Panda for what they're really uh, <laughs> for? Uh, so I was trying to blast data into OpenGL with Piglet. Piglet is also a very nice library. See, there, there, there I, I remember packages now. Uh, so I blast OpenGL data into Piglet coming out of Oh, sorry, uh, NumPy, I mean, of course, not numeric. So out of NumPy uh, arrays, blast them into OpenGL so to try to uh, reduce overhead. Okay, that's a pretty interesting use case. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, awesome. Well, <laughs> very interesting answers. Okay, so got a final call for action. Like, how do people get started with more path? Like, what can they do? What What do you need? Do you need contributors? What What's the What's on your radar that you'd love to have? Well, what our contributors are always great. We have a few core contributors now, which I'm very happy about. And and I noticed that if I do like one major outreach thing, like in in when I spoke at EuroPython in 2014 for for like hundreds of people, one guy started using MoPath and he became a core contributor. So that's just a few core contributors already. Uh, such a wealth in an open source project. So those things I, I like very much. Uh, we have a, a documentation website, uh, morepath.readthedocs.io. Uh, There's also a link to a Discord chat, so it just opens in your web browser and you can uh, talk to uh, Morepath developers and, and uh, other people use Morepath. Create an issue on the issue tracker. That's also a way to reach us. And yeah, I started thinking a little bit about, um, I was looking at Django a little bit recently, so I was starting a little bit about 
trying to create something like the Django admin UI, but then for more part using client-side technology somehow, and perhaps using, uh, I've never used it before, but I, I, I looked at the uh, Pony ORM, and uh, that looks like a nice uh, ORM, so maybe I'll try that one day. Yeah, Pony ORM is really nice. I, I, I had those guys on the show about 10 weeks ago, and it's, it's, it's really cool. Yes, yeah. That's excellent. Everyone get out there and check out more path. And Martin, thank you for being on the show. It was great to talk with you. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you for uh, letting me talk. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> this has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Today's guest has been Martin Fassen. And this episode has been sponsored by Metis and Hired. Thank you both for supporting the show. Want to learn data science? Well, don't forget to visit thisismetis.com slash talkpython to learn more about their upcoming courses. Get the skills that you need to succeed in the fast-paced world of data science. Hired wants to help you find your next big thing. Visit hired.com slash talkpython to me to get five or more offers with salary and equity presented right up front and a special listener signing bonus of $2,000. Are you or a colleague trying to learn Python? Have you tried books and videos that just left you bored by covering topics point by point? Well, check out my online course, Python Jumpstart by Building 10 Apps at talkpython.fm course to experience a more engaging way to learn Python. And if you're looking for something a little more advanced, try my Write Pythonic Code course at talkpython.fm pythonic. Be sure to subscribe to the show. Open your favorite podcatcher and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes. Google Play feed at slash play and direct RSS feed at slash RSS on talkpython.fm. Our theme music is Developers, Developers, Developers by Corey Smith, who goes by Smix. Corey just recently started selling his tracks on iTunes, so I recommend you check it out at talkpython.fm slash music. You can browse his tracks he has for sale on iTunes and listen to the full-length version of the theme song. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Smix, let's get out of here. Stating with my voice, there's no norm that I can feel within. Haven't been sleeping, I've been using lots of rest. I'll pass the mic back to who rocked it best. <laughs>